today is this. Can God and science be friends? Can God and science be friends? Now, I know I loved science in high school. I still love science. Both my kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a scientist. So there's something there. Um, I'm all geeked out by science and science stuff. I know for some of you, the closest you got to science is Sheldon Cooper in the Big Bang Theory. All right, and I know last week I used a couple of big words, and some of you guys were like, what? Uh, today, I promise that we're, uh, even though we're talking about science, uh, we're not going to be using some of those words. Um, but we're looking at these questions, and this is one of those questions that can really become an obstacle to people coming to faith. In fact, when we think about, and we can look at this statistically, people walking away from church, not just Riverside to go to another church, but walking away from the church, whether it's here in Joburg or Australia or Europe or in the States, well, one of the biggest dropout ages is when people go from high school into varsity. And usually the reason is, look, there's also hormones. Let's not kid, there's also hormones and opportunity. Um, but... One of the biggest reasons is because up to a certain point, especially if you've grown up in church, man, you know all the Bible stories. You can talk about Moses parting the Red Sea, and you can talk about Abraham and Isaac and going up the hill, and you, and you can talk about David and Goliath, and you can talk about Jesus' miracles, and maybe you can even quote a couple of verses from the other letters of the Bible. Uh, and you go into university, and these guys start teaching you about existentialism, and they start teaching you about uh, secular psychology and and, and all these theories, are often other non-theistic theories, meaning theories that don't even think about God, or even anti-theistic theories at a high level. And these guys aren't equipped for dealing with these questions. And unfortunately, the way that narrative often plays out is they go back to the youth pastor, they go back to the parents, they go back to the church, and they just say, hey, listen, we just got this lecture on X, Y, Z, and... Um, Help me work that out as a Christian. And so often the answer is, Angas, I don't know, just believe. Don't question, just believe. And we get given children's answers to adult questions. And if you're a parent or if you're going to be a parent, I just heard one guy say, uh, he, he just says to his kids, ask me the toughest questions you can think of. Not because I'm the most you know, brilliant guy in the world, but you need to wrestle with these questions. And if I don't know the answer, I'm going to find the answer for you. And I'm going to help you find the answers. So when you get your first year philosophy, first year psychology, microbiology, you are equipped to deal with the world of ideas. And that is part of what the series is about. And I'm contending that the Bible is not anti-evidence. I'm contending the Bible is not anti-asking these tough questions. In fact, I believe, I don't believe, I think it's there. I can show you that in the first three chapters of the Bible, all the major questions are asked and answered. Every single one of them that have plagued philosophers and theologians and normal people like you and me for the last several thousand years are right there in the first three chapters of the Bible. Last week, we looked at the first verse of the Bible, easiest verse to find, Genesis 1, verses 1. In the beginning, God. And without recounting the sermon, just saying two things. There is a beginning for so long. Not even science acknowledged there was such a thing as the beginning. Now it's pretty much universally accepted. 
Bible got there first. But in the beginning, God. God is the reason for the beginning. God is the one who brought it into being. And as we read beyond Genesis 1 verses 1, we read, and we're not going to do it this morning. As I explained to you guys last week, uh, we're following a slightly different format for this series. Normally we read some verses, uh, try and like wrap our minds around the verses in Scripture, and then try to apply it in our lives in faith. Uh, what we're doing now is looking for evidence Assuming that what we believe is true and, and what does the evidence out there look like? So we're going to do that again today. But as you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see the unfolding of creation. You see God creating this and it was good and God creating the next thing. It was good and God creating the next thing and it was good. So we understand that not only was God the beginning, was God the cause, was God the one who gave us design, but God is the one who was behind the whole created order and is still behind the whole created order. But not so when we talk about this tension between faith and science. Unfortunately, in the religious community as well as the non-religious community, often faith and science are pitted against each other. You know, in the one corner in the red is faith, and usually it's painted like the wimpy little kid. You know, and in the other corner in the blue is science. Whoa! And that's often how it's painted to us, and, and, and that puts us in a predicament. It's often, you know, science or secularism is based on evidence, and faith, so sorry, religion is based on faith. Science is rational, and faith is irrational. And of course, when that paradigm is given to you, who wants to be sitting on the irrational team? Who wants to be sitting on the anti-science team? And so often for those in the Christian community and those outside of the Christian community, they're in a position that if I love science, uh, is it rational for me to believe in God? Am I allowed to? Because everyone's telling me I can't. And often for those in the Christian community, well, I believe in God, and unfortunately, so many circles were taught to be suspicious of science. That science is a bad thing. Listen to what Richard Dawkins says about faith. He says, faith is like a mental illness, so you're all sick. Faith is like a mental illness, a great cop-out, the excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. I think part of what fuels that fire that science and secularism is rational and faith is irrational, is that often, again, by both sides, often faith is spoken about in kind of a blind faith sense. A blind faith sense. You take a leap of faith. Again, you just believe. And I know for some of us here this morning, man, it's just, I hear it and I believe. But the Bible also encourages us to look at evidence. But again, what the research is showing is that our young people are going out there. They're giving a whole lot of evidence that is supposedly pointing away from the existence of God. And we're just telling them, no, 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 just have faith, just believe. And I want to say to us, the Bible is not against us asking these difficult questions. The Bible raises them first. The Bible goes there first and is inviting us to bring our difficult questions to it. You see, faith doesn't magically make something true. Right? We believe the Bible is true. Whether I believe it or not. So we're saying, listen, if this is true, it is open to scrutiny. It is going to align with truth. Check it out. 
Check out our Bible. Check out the claims. Check out the facts. Check out the evidence. If it's true, we do not need to be concerned. So we can know and we can show that it is true. The Bible is not against evidence. But of course, biblical faith is not necessarily taking a blind leap of faith into something that may or may not be true. Biblical faith is getting to the point where I put my trust in this truth. And specifically, and we're going to get there over the weeks, into a person who I know is true. And all of you, if you've been believers for any period of time, you know that you come to times where you're reading God's word and it doesn't make sense to you or God is calling you. He's speaking to you about your finances. He's speaking to you about marriage. He's speaking to you about your sexuality. And it's not making a lot of sense to you. Right, even a few weeks ago, we kind of spoke about those times where we were like, God, if you could just explain things to me, that'd be cool. You know, I've got two kids, eight and six. They're really growing up to be big boys now, but I just remember when they were a bit younger and like, you know, those onesies and that really, really cute toddler face. And sometimes they'd come up to me with a crazy request. Dad, can I have ice cream for breakfast? I'd be like, no, why? And if they came to me with a crazy request, And if I could give them a rational answer, I would give it to them. Bianca and I believe in the power of the why. But sometimes they want to do things and we can't explain the why. We're kind of like saying, well, why? Just just, just trust me, boys. But tell me why. And uh, listen, when you're 30, you'll understand. When you've got a wife, you'll understand. When you've got kids, you'll understand. But for now, I'm dead. Trust me. Now, what I'm not asking them to do is to take a step of blind faith. I'm asking them to trust the dad who's read to them in bed, who's provided for them, who's walked with them, who's called to them, who's helped them when they've been crying, who's helped them deal with their little lives. And based on the evidence, based on what is true about me, I'm saying in these areas, trust me. That is biblical faith. It is not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. It's a most rational next step to take when we know who God is. And we are working towards that over the course of these next few weeks. So faith is not about leaving your brain at the door. Scriptures say time and time again, defend the faith. Give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. We need to be able to be conversant. So when people ask us, we are able to give the reason. The Greek word for there for reason is apologia, which is where we get the word apologetic. It doesn't mean being all apologetic. I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. It means about having a rational way. The Bible commands us to have a rational way to speak about our faith. And that's what the series is about. So for some people, faith is this blind leap of faith that is not based on evidence. For others, faith is functional, whatever works. So it's kind of like, well, you know, me and my wife, we're struggling in our marriage and we're really trying to keep it together. We've tried this, we've tried that, it doesn't work. So we started smoking crack cocaine and now we've got the greatest marriage, right? How did you guys get such a wonderful marriage? I don't know, well, we went to church. Oh, good for you. And you guys, how did you get such a good marriage? Oh, you know, a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of this, a little bit of meditation. And, you know, it works. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on what is objectively true. It is based on what feels good right now. It's a functional faith. And again, we're arguing, well, what is true? 
even if it takes us into uncomfortable spaces. So for some, faith is this blind leap of faith, which is not biblical faith. For others, it's this functional faith. It's just like whatever works. And then back to this tension between faith and science that they cannot be friends. Faith is spoken about as an excuse not to think. Spoken about an excuse not to reason and think and inquire. And what is often told us is that any serious thinker, any intelligent person will abandon faith. So the first thing I want to say about this faith and science kind of polarization is this. Number one, if taking notes, science is good. Science is good. We believe that God created this world. St. Augustine, famous fourth century theologian, probably the most famous theologian since Paul and Jesus. He said, God gave us two books, his written word and his natural word. And these are going to agree. Good science and good theology are gonna be like my left and my right hand. Science is good. God created this world. He wants us to inquire. Now to why I'm sitting on this chair, some of you may know that I was in hospital for four days this last week for bladder surgery. And I can stand here, sit here, saying, so no stage diving today. I, I can sit here saying that I love science. I'm sitting here because of science. Not that I'd be dead if it wasn't for it. I'd just be in an incredible amount of pain. I mean, God help people understand the human body. God's added technology into the midst and our ability to understand technology so that I could have the most painless surgery on me so that I can be sitting here this morning. I love science. Science is good. Some of you may know the show Mythbusters. If you haven't seen Mythbusters, the premise of the show is there's some urban myth or old wives tale or some crazy theory that has made its circle. And uh, what these guys do is they use science to show whether or not this is a myth or whether it is true. And sometimes they bust the myth and say, well, totally wrong. And sometimes they say, well, actually the myth turns out to be true. Science can do that. And I love science. Science is good at studying the natural and the physical world. But point number two is, science cannot explain everything. How do you bust the myth about God using science? See, science is very good. It's what it's designed for, to describe and to define and help us understand the natural world, the created world and everything in it. But God is outside the natural world. So what scientific experiments can you devise in order to prove something outside of the realm of science? We use the word metaphysics. God is in metaphysics. Meta from Greek meaning above or beyond physics. Physics is incapable by definition of defining God. And yet so many people will say, I will only believe what can be proven by science. So by definition, science can only study the natural world. It cannot study the metaphysical world. So you are excluding a whole range of options by saying, I can only believe what science can prove. That's kind of like, okay, it's been, we've had the August winds, right? 
And some of us have figured out, well, you know, these windows need to close and those windows need to close because of all the dust and the ash and the leaves that are coming in the house. So it's kind of like saying, look, I come into my lounge, I see a whole lot of dust and leaves in the lounge, and I'm saying, how did this get here? And my wife and kids walk in and they say, no, 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 they came from outside. And I say, no, 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 I refuse to believe that anything came from outside of this room. I want to know how the leaves came in here from inside the room. I'm shutting myself off from the possibility of something outside of the room. And by saying, I'll only believe what science can prove is shutting myself off from the possibility of something existing outside of the physical world. So those who say, I'll only believe what can, science, can be proven by science are actually being more closed-minded than those who are willing to say, well, let science do its job and let's believe those things. And if something is pointing outside of the physical world, let's investigate that. And maybe that's God. So science cannot explain everything, even though it's good. So here's the thing. I, together with so many people, believe that God and science can be friends. Because we believe God made this world. He wants us to investigate it. He made it ordered, the design that we looked at. Things don't randomly happen. It happens the same way every time because God made it that way. He wants us to discover medicine. He wants us to discover the human body. He wants us to get into the intricacies of subatomic physics. Uh, uh, sub- atomic particle physics and all that kind of stuff. He wants us to get our telescopes to the end of the universe so that we're going, wow, this is incredible. But do you know that if we look at history, this is the third point for this morning, Christianity encourages science. Now maybe today it's given to us, and I don't believe it is true that Christianity discourages science, Christianity encourages science. There are a number of worldviews that were around the time that this was all happening uh, and, 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 and the kind of modern scientific revolution. And there are a number of worldviews that do actually discourage science. The first one is animism. Animism is basically the worldview that most tribal religions hold on to. Most tribal religions, once you get down to the fundamental basics, believe that everything in the created world either has God in it or is God itself or some form of a God. So how can we objectify God by studying creation? So no, 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 we just live, we do our thing, but we're not going to study it because we've deified it. That's animism. Then we've got our, our Eastern religions and we've got Buddhism. And Buddhism, and we've spoken about this before, believes that everything in the material world is maya, or the best translation is the word illusion. So if everything is an illusion... When we study it and we come to conclusions, those conclusions will be an illusion. So therefore, why study? And just by the way, most of our new age westernized morphs of new ageism come from Buddhism. Then we've got our polytheistic religions. Poly meaning many, theistic meaning gods. So religions with many gods. Think about the old Greco-Roman religions with Zeus and uh, the old Nordic religions and those have largely disappeared. Uh, But we've got Hinduism, for example. And again, once you get down to, well, how do these gods engage with with reality and how does science fit in? Uh, Generally, what you find is that, well, all the natural phenomena that we encounter are really the random whims of the gods. So there's a drought. Well, so-and-so God must be angry with us, so we need to appease that God. Not looking for a scientific explanation. Baby died. Well, let's not discover how the baby died. No, it must have been such and such a God that is angry with us, so we're going to appease that God. 
discourages science. But when we bring it back to Christianity, do you know that Christianity was the first movement to promote the general public learning to read and write? Because they wanted, and this happened in monasteries, they wanted the general public to be able to read, to be informed and to read the scriptures and study rhetoric and study the world. Out of that trajectory, we get universities. Universities is a Christian or a Christian invention. Think of the major Ivy League universities, Brown and Harvard and Oxford. They were started by Christians. Knowing that God has made this world for us to go and discover and learn and grow. They never saw a tension between the natural world and the, re- the existence and the reality of God. Now, of course, there are a number of scientists. And I know some of you sitting here are scientists and you're engineers. And you're saying, I don't have a problem with God and science. But there are a number of leading thinkers or leading scientists who started off as either agnostics, meaning I don't really know, so we're just going to leave that topic alone. Or atheists, meaning no, I can say certainly there is no God. And because of their research, led them towards believing that there is in fact a God. I'll give you two quick examples. Some of you older guys might remember a guy by the name of Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was kind of like the Richard Dawkins of the previous generation. He was an outspoken atheist, an intelligent, intelligent guy. And, and he was kind of one of the first people just to write vociferously, putting literature into the hands of the public, saying, read this, there's no God. Arguing, there's no God. Read this, there is no God for most of his life. Then at the age of 84, about 11 years ago, he died a few years ago, he released a book called There Is a God. See, he started getting bothered by this question. So he started looking at the scientific world. He started looking at the natural world. Now, what does it take? So some of you have these wonderful careers where you're looked up to and admired. And of course, you're getting that wonderful paycheck at the end of every month. What would it take for you to take 40, 50 years of the ideas that you've shaped and formed. You you are known for this. You're famous for this. You are endorsed publicly and financially because of your views and because of your work. Think of literally the peer pressure, even for an 80-year-old, to suddenly turn around and say, there is a God. So Anthony Flew was asked, well, was it your studies in the origins of life that actually led you to believe that there is a God? And listen to what he says, and the quotes will be on the screen behind me. He says, yes, I now think it does, almost entirely because of DNA investigations. We looked at this last week. It's the enormous complexity of the number of elements and the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together. The meeting of these two parts at the right time by chance is simply minute. It is all a matter of the enormous complexity by which the results were achieved, which looked to me like the work of intelligence. Okay, so that's Anthony Flew. Let me introduce you to somebody else, Francis Collins. Francis Collins was in genetic research and he was the first to, person to map out the human genome. He got, he's still alive and he got the Presidential Medal of Freedom basically saying, listen, you're one of the brightest people in the face of the planet. And he also concluded, based on his studies, that there is a God. 
And he says this, the only reason people believe there is a collision between faith and science is because people haven't studied the Christian faith. So it would seem that far from Christians being these narrow-minded, bigoted, superstitious people, that there are ways that we can reconcile that God made this world for us to learn and study from. We can embrace God, we can embrace faith and embrace science. So if this is the case, why is it that so few people believe, especially in this world? By the way, there's a bit of a movement happening in the philosophical world when more and more people in philosophy are recognizing the strength of the arguments of God's existence. It's more in the science world and the popular world that this is still going on. But again, if this is the case, why do so few people believe? Now, obviously, why don't people believe? There's a whole number of ways that you can answer this question. But in the realm of science and faith, I want to talk about Thomas Nagel. Again, he's also alive and he's an American philosopher. He wrote a book in 2012 called The End of Naturalism. Naturalism, the philosophy that everything is called by natural causes. No such thing as supernatural causes. And what he said in this book just a few years ago, he says, if you believe that this universe came into being by natural means, there's something wrong with you. Then a few years later, he released a book, Thomas Nagel, called The Cosmos, where he said the same thing. And yet he would still say, but I'm not a believer in God. So he was asked, well, you're saying these things, you're saying this universe cannot come into being because of natural causes. Why is it that you're not a believer? And this is what he said. He said, I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Aldous Huxley, you may have heard of the book, A Brave New World. So, uh, yes, Brave New World. This is what he said. He said, I had motive for not wanting the world to have meaning. I consequently assumed that it had none. For myself, this is why he's not a believer. The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. And that came from his work, Ends and Means. In other words, he's saying, if there's a God, it messes up with my political freedom. It messes up with my sexual freedom. So can you see, both for Thomas Nagel and Aldous Huxley, it's not based on evidence, the presence or absence thereof. It's based on a presupposition. Regardless of what the evidence is saying, these guys are saying, I don't want there to be a God and therefore I don't want to believe. And what I love about that is the honesty because they're being consistent with what they're claiming to be true. So now let's get back to the Bible, this backward, closed-minded, bigoted book that only people like Sheldon Cooper's mother and Ned Flanders believe in. If you watch TV, you'll know who those guys are. What we find when we look at the Bible and we come to science is here's point number four. The Bible is way ahead of its time. The Bible is way ahead of its time. We've been talking about Genesis 1, the creation story, and that God started it all. Remember that Genesis was written 3,000 years before the birth of modern science. 
three and a half thousand years ago. Three and a half thousand years before the Big Bang Theory. Now I understand there's a lot of debate even in the Christian world around the time scale. We're not going to go there today. But if you take Genesis 1 and 2 and you line up the order of creation and you take what our cosmic theorists and the Big Bang theorists are saying happened at the start of creation, they line up perfectly. Three and a half thousand years ago. You must understand competing creation stories, Egyptian myths, Babylonian myths, are just myths. This God did this. I'm not going to get into the details because some of them are pretty gross actually. And that's how the creation world came into being. No one's arguing that is the truth. How is it that we've got this correspondence? Uh, Robert Jastrow, I don't expect you guys to remember these names, but I hope that you see what they're saying. He is an astronomer and he's the founder of NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies. And he's an agnostic. This is what he said about the correspondence between Genesis 1 and the Big Bang Theory. He says, now we see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. He's not even a believer. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Let's go to the book of Job. Some of you may know the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Written about 500 years before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. 4,000 years ago. Listen to what comes out of the book of Job. In Job 26 verse 7, it describes our earth as a sphere spinning on nothing. 4,000 years ago. This was before the moon landing. This was before we knew that the world was a planet and a sphere. This, I mean, like, how can this thing rest on nothing? Bible got there first. Held together only by gravity. Job 38 verse 16, again, 4,000 years ago, tells us that there are springs at the bottom of the ocean. Science only discovered that in the 70s when we could build a, 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 a vehicle that could take us to those depths and withstand those pressure conditions. And suddenly we're discovering what the Bible has already said is true. Then we've got, I don't know if you've ever tried to read the Bible from the beginning. You got stuck somewhere in Leviticus. There's all these laws. Just not a good idea. Um, Bible reading 101. We, you start reading chapters 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15. You're just reading and it's like God's declaring this is clean and that's unclean. And this is clean and that's unclean. And for us modern readers, we read this and we're like, especially if you're a bit cynical or a bit skeptical. Gee, this seems pretty random. It's like God put a whole lot of stuff in a wall, threw some dots and decided what is clean and unclean. So many of these clean and unclean have to do with skin conditions and, and bodily fluids. Do you know, this was 3,300 years before the germ theory. Louis Pasteur couple of hundred years ago, he came to realize the theory was already in existence from another guy. But 20 years later, Louis Pasteur proved that not only do we have large organisms like you and me and elephants and cockroaches, but we've got microorganisms that we cannot see. And they're as real and they're as present as you and I are. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. Do you know it was just over a hundred years ago that doctors started washing their hands before surgery. 
And yet God said, 3,300 years ago, if someone has a skin condition, a skin disease, if they are bodily fluids, what you need to do, this person's unclean, you need to separate them. God got to quarantine first. You need to separate them. You need to take their clothes. Sounds so extreme to us. You need to take their clothes. And again, I mean, we've got some of the conveniences of modern medicine and modern facilities. No, you need to take their clothes. You need to take their clothes and everything that they've touched and you need to burn it outside of the city. Oh, that's stupid, God. How ridiculous is that? It was only recently that people discovered that leprosy can stay alive for up to three weeks after someone's touched something. Someone with a skin condition or something with bodily fluids um, goes out and God is trying to protect us, touches someone, uh, that person is unclean or touches something, that thing is unclean and these people need to be separated, almost quarantined. And God's saying, hey, listen guys, I could explain it all to you now. You're going to discover the truth about this in 3,300 years time. In the meantime, trust me. Have you ever been at a sports game or watched a rugby when something gets a blood nose or a wound to the head or accident scene? What's the first thing a paramedic does? Rubber gloves. Because they know presence of microbes, bodily fluids, it doesn't matter which ones they are. Bad combination. I was in a hospital, but they wouldn't touch me without rubber gloves. Right? Because they know what God already knew. And guys, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg. We could go on and on and on, uh, but we won't do that this morning, I promise. (laughs) So I believe that God and science can be friends. If you're not a believer here this morning or listening on one of our podcasts, God doesn't have to be like that person that you walk around, you see them in the glen and you try and avoid them. (laughs) You don't have to do that. There's nothing here at Riverside Community Church, and I can't speak for all communities, that says, leave your brain at the door. If you're a believer and you've got doubts and you've got questions and you want to see the evidence, there's nothing in the Bible that says, don't look for the evidence. Jesus says, don't just believe what I say. Look at my miracles. Look at the uh, the, the prophecies. Believe on the evidence. The book of Exodus, it says that the Israelites saw all that God had done and then they put their trust in Him. If you are a believer, we don't have to be afraid of science. Science is this tool that is helping us discover all that God has made. Let me read Romans 1 verses 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made. I heard someone say, science should lead us to the throne room of God. It should cause us to stop and wonder and be in awe of things like, I said I wouldn't do this, but it's just amazing, irreducible complexities and DNA, and RNA, the size and the scope of our universe, the more we discover, we should go, wow. This verse is saying, go forth, conquer, understand. 
Look at the beauty. Let your mind be blown by these things. Science, for us as believers, should not be a conversation stopper. And I know that there are some people on both sides of the debate who get very angry very quickly, who make the conversation very difficult. Riversiders, I'm asking for a pact from you guys that you're not one of those. Because the Bible says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. But do it with gentleness and do it with respect. Next week, where are we going? Next week, we're asking the question, are humans special? Why do we treat humans with such dignity and we kill our cockroaches? If you ask me, Stephen, sounds like you've got something against cockroaches. I do. All right. Are humans special? Because we need a worldview that's going to help us understand that and raise the dignity of humanity as well as the rest of the created order. So again, guys, I want to encourage you, take notes, think about this. I know that most of you will not be able to remember most of what we said this morning. But I want you to have the confidence that there are answers to your questions. There are answers to your kids' questions. Your son's studying astrophysics. There are answers to his questions. And we can be confident if what, believe, if what we believe is true, we don't have to be afraid and intimidated by science. At the same time, we can trust a person. We can trust Jesus and trust our God for everything, even the things we don't fully understand. Don't forget that our library is open. We've got some books. They actually have some books specifically covering these topics out for you to take out, read, for you to maybe, you know, hand out. Maybe you want to order some of these books for yourself so that you can read these things up for yourself. So having said all of that, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can see your fingerprints in our world. The more we study, the more we are amazed by you. The stars speak of your greatness. Your word speaks of things that were discovered thousands of years later after they were written down in your word. God, I thank you that you invite us into this generous space of dialogue. I thank you that we can worship you, yes, with our hearts. But you're also calling us, in fact, commanding us to worship you with our minds. I pray that something is sinking within us, just giving us a firm foundation for our faith. I pray, God, that you're mobilizing us to take that seriously, that we need to be armed with reasons for the hope that we have in you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that your presence also in how we engage with people, that we are gentle that you're respectful at all times because you've called us to love our neighbors. You've even called us to love our enemies.